We have sleet today. It'll be in the 60s tomorrow, and then it won't get above freezing on Friday. What a wacky winter weather week we're having. One month till spring. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Courtney Astolfi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. We have some interesting stories to discuss today. Not a huge list. Let's go to it. We finally have the wording on the proposed amendment to the Ohio Constitution that would enshrine a right to abortion in keeping with the wishes of most Ohioans. Lisa, what does it specify? Well, it doesn't just cover abortion rights. It also covers other areas of reproductive freedom. So this is the first in a long series of legal steps that need to be taken by abortion rights advocates. They filed their written summary with the attorney general's office yesterday, along with the proposed text for the ballot measure and a thousand verified voter signatures. So the, the official title is Right to Reproductive Freedom with Protections for Health and Safety. Like I said, it enshrines an individual's right to abortion, but also other reproductive health areas like birth control and fertility treatment. Um, it, this does still allow state the state to ban abortions after fetal viability, which actually I didn't know this. Back in 1971, viability was considered 28 weeks, but it's now down to about 23 to 24 weeks today and possibly as low as 22, which is actually what's happening currently in Ohio. As you know, the fetal heart built beat law is on hold until the Supreme Court takes a look. And uh, so we're at 22 weeks. You can still have an abortion at 22 weeks here in Ohio. So um, this is the first look at what the groups are proposing. The Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom and the Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights finally joined forces and they want to get it on the ballot in November. Doesn't the language also specify viability as determined by the patient's doctor? Correct. Isn't that part of the language? The the I got an interesting note from one of the the listeners readers of our platforms questioning why they use the words pregnant person instead of woman. Not not they're not questioning it from the political correctness of it. They're questioning it as a pragmatic move. Mm-hmm. That's going to offend people. There, there are people that believe that pregnancy is about a woman and that it's been silly to move away from that. And so do you lose votes by going with what surely the opponents will call wokeism and you know nonsense about we're not even giving women the the, the the words pregnancy. That's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. I, I, you, you very well could lose some votes because of that. Yeah. And it's really become kind of a, like a, an arguing point. And I'm, I'm in the camp that only women, only biological women can have children because that's a scientific fact. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I hadn't thought of it until I got the note, but I thought, why would you weaken the support for it? This is going to be a war until November if they get the signatures and the antis are going to be making, they already are. They started with the ridiculous claims already that, you know, we're, we're trying to kill babies when they're viable and this is going to allow lots of late term abortions. I mean, they they, they started throwing the gasoline on the fire almost immediately and you, you will see ads on both sides and, and all that. So you would think the people that are behind this would try and be as ironclad, as invulnerable to criticism as possible uh, and and they put a lot of thought. This is this is smart. This is well crafted. I was very impressed when I read it. 
but that seems like it's a, a flaw in their logic. We'll have to see. It's a, it'll be a lot of talk between now and November. Probably a lot of postcards. I don't mm. know if it'll be about Red China, but we'll all be getting lots of postcards in the mail. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have talked a lot about the popularity of sports gambling in Ohio with the caveat that it would cause addiction issues for some. The early numbers are in and they are not good. What do they show, Courtney? Yeah, we looked at numbers from Ohio's problem gambling hotline and and looking at the first month of legalized sports betting in Ohio, there were an average of 48 calls to the hotline per day in January. Now, that's more than double the average in December, which was 20 calls a day. And compare that to a year ago in January 2022, when there were just 15 calls. So it's going up. And the folks who who know this world said that, that it was really no surprise that it was going up, you know, saw that coming based on other states who have legalized sports betting. However, you know, I, I thought one little data point here was interesting. They told us that the largest jumping calls to the hotline came from 18 to 34-year-olds, many of whom started gambling less than a year ago. So that was an interesting data point. And, and we talked to the Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio, Michael Michael Buzelli, and and he basically said that this is going to be the new normal, that higher rates come in when states legalize sports betting and they stay that way as, as you know, as, as that practice continues. We, we did hear anecdotally in January about much younger people spending a lot of time on their phones gambling. It, it, when it came up in our newsroom, there were people in our newsroom saying, oh, yeah, my friends are doing this or my boyfriend is doing this. Um, and it, again, as gambling was coming, it affects everybody. But it is interesting that that's where they're seeing an increase. What you worry about, and I don't know that anybody can estimate this, is what what does it mean for the total number of people with problem gambling, right? That, that these are the people that reached out, that recognized, uh-oh, uh, I've got a problem here. But how many people don't and then lose everything? I don't know if there's good science on how many lives get permanently altered by the easy availability of gambling. We've never had it before where you could just do it so easily on your phone 24 hours a day. Right. And that's something that Buzelli of the Problem Gambling Network really, really kind of brought up. It's not like a gambling issue where you have to, you know, trudge down to the casino and, and, and do it there. There's tons of ads everywhere. You pull open your laptop, you pull open your phone. There's an entree in to clicking through those ads. There's there's grocery store kiosks and, and you're carrying it around in your pocket. So, you know, Buzelli also pointed to this style of gambling is, he described it as rapid play. You can bet on the outcome of each quarter, each inning. You can narrow down bets and make wagers on every single pitch that a pitcher throws in a baseball game. So it just seems like this is a different animal than getting in your car and driving downtown to go to the casino. You know, it's just everywhere, all the time, all at once. I should point out that we are making some money on sports gambling advertising and supporting the journalism we do, including this podcast. I Clearly, Courtney, people want 
sports gambling. The numbers of people that are participating in it show that this is something that Ohioans wanted to do. And the prohibitions, you could argue, were just limiting them from something that that is recreational. I, I just wonder if more should be done to help the problem gamblers than those little ads, the little disclaimers that run under everything saying, Hey, if you got a problem, call this number. Uh, if, if there should be requirements that the people making the, the big bucks off of this, you should be doing more outreach or should have some kind of programs in place. You know, you could, you can do anything with programming to, to spot the problem sports gambler, and and focus some help on them. They know who's spending the money. They know what people are losing. So should there be some requirement that when somebody starts to lose money at a certain rate, they these these sports books have a duty to reach out and help? Yeah, I mean, I folks do it to have fun. I, I don't know. You know, we think about other vices that we allow alcohol and the disclaimers, you know, don't drink too much and, and, and cigarettes. And there's the quit line for that. It seems like the supports that are in place for this vice that's legal are kind of akin to those others, but you raise a good question. And I'm kind of curious hugely here about the demographics, not just of those calling the hotline, but who are having issues. Is this, is this hitting, you know, lower income folks more, higher income folks more? I bet the gender divide's pretty stark. So I'm just curious which Ohioans this is hitting. It's interesting though, that you bring up alcohol because the bar owner does have a duty uh, if if you are sloppy drunk, they they have some liability mm-hmm. if you go out and cause mayhem. And so they will reach over and seek to get you a ride home. That But you don't have the same kind of thing here. I don't know. I, I will be exploring this plenty in the coming months, weeks, years. Uh, this is a problem that will grow. And I'm sure the anecdotes of people who lose everything will will stir people to action. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The head of the U.S. EPA joined the governors of Ohio and Pennsylvania for some strong words aimed at the railroad responsible for the big derailment in East Palestine. I should say the governor of Pennsylvania and the U.S. EPA director had strong words. Mike DeWine, not so much. Laura, what did they have to say? Yeah, DeWine was a little more nuanced in his comments, but (laughs) nuanced. (laughs) Okay, you could call it nuanced. I could call it soft. Okay, so Norfolk Southern must submit to the EPA a work plan that outlines every single necessary step to clean up the derailment. That includes tearing up the tracks, digging out under the contaminated dirt, and getting it all out. And the EPA has to offer free cleaning services to residents living near the crash site that Norfolk Southern is going to cover that cost. And all those Norfolk Southern officials must attend and participate in public meetings about the derailment. Remember one of the first meetings, they were no-shows. If they don't complete any action ordered by the EPA, the EPA is going to do the work itself and force the railroad to pay three times the cost. They're going to keep testing that water. And uh, Governor Shapiro had some very sharp statements. He said, the combination of Norfolk Southern's corporate greed, incompetence, and lack of care for our residents is absolutely unacceptable to me. Yeah. It's interesting that it takes the EPA to order them to clean it up, that that is what makes it happen. And, you know, they're going to have to dig out the tracks, right? You got to take up the tracks, take up the rocks and get down into the soil. I, I, 
I would have thought Norfolk Southern would have come out right away and say, we're cleaning it up. You know, we're jumping on it. We're going to bring the EPA in to make sure we're doing it. Seems like Norfolk Southern is really doing a poor job of responding to this. Well, I mean, they didn't even respond when they were supposed to come to that public meeting, right? So, yeah. And, and the fact that we're having this discussion now, what is this, almost three weeks after the actual derailment, they were not quick to volunteer to, to make sure that everybody was going to end up okay. I mean, I, they got there, there was the immediate cleanup and the fire, but this seems kind of late for saying, hey, you need to take care of the mess that you made. Even though for a week we've been saying, hey, FEMA doesn't need to come in here because this is Norfolk Southern's responsibility. Well, it's interesting you say about they didn't show up for the meeting because now they're being required to show yeah, up for the meeting. Exactly. I didn't realize the EPA had the power to compel you to appear for a public meeting. I'm not sure that's in the code of federal regulations. Or what they're going to charge them if they don't, right? Because yeah, they said, I, they'll I charge you three that. times. I mean, what do you charge them for that? I don't know. You can uh, compel action like cleaning up, but can you make them show up to have tomatoes thrown at their face? I'm not sure. They So the, the clinic did open yesterday. We've talked about that. 40 people have appointments, so that's good. Norfolk Southern did put out a statement. It does seem a little bit too little, too late. They said, we're investing in helping East Palestine thrive for the long term, and we will continue to be in the community for as long as it takes. We are going to learn from this terrible accident and work with regulators and elected officials to improve railroad safety. And that's one thing that the residents, I understand their fear. They're saying, you're here now because the media is here and the camera's here. What happens after the cameras leave? And DeWine is saying they're in there for the long run. They're, they're going to still be there. But I, I, we've talked about this before there's a lot of distrust of government and I understand them saying, how do I know that this isn't just lip service? Yeah. We received an interesting note yesterday in response to some things we said on the podcast saying, you know, I hear what you're saying about this isn't the end all be all that the tests are coming back negative, but the people of East Palestine are in an area where they've been repeatedly lied to and let down by their government. So they don't trust it. They don't, even though, Mike DeWine is saying, look, we keep testing. It's clear. It's clear. They're not buying it because in the past, the government hasn't been as truthful. And we've seen it over and over that the government isn't truthful frequently. And it leads to this kind of panic. When you're talking about the water you drink, the air you breathe, you, you really want to make sure that it's safe for you, for your children, for your pets. And they're just not trusting it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How important was it for Larry Householder to have a woman on his team as he sought to corrupt the system in the HB6 scandal? Courtney, this was such a strange story to come out of the trial. Yeah, I'm still shaking my head, but I guess this isn't that surprising. You know, uh, former speaker Larry Householder had, you know, he, every speaker has their leadership team. Uh, it's a team of four. And he'd hired, you know, three guys for the top three slots that, that he wanted and, and, and documents that are part of this court case showed that that fourth slot, he left that open as a generic placeholder woman in all caps was how he was trying to fill that no matter what she, you know, thought or what her positions were. We just needed a woman on that team. Right. You're all interchangeable. I, oh, you know, gosh. you're not individuals. Your positions don't matter. You're it's like, just stick a woman on there. And then we, we have the diversity we need. Where are the tomatoes? <laughs> yeah. It's Give an, me it's, one. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just one of those where you look at, this is such, such an eye opening 
trial. It is showing you so much about the way these politicians truly think about their constituents, about their colleagues, and really they hold them in utter disdain. This was all about amassing money, amassing power, and everybody else be damned. Well, the, and the person that is the woman testified, right? Yeah. So let's talk about woman here. Laura Linazzi, of a former moderate Republican state lawmaker from Grove City. She was not having householders stuff, apparently. So she was she was put on this team. She told jurors on Tuesday that she found it to be qu- quite a surprise when, when Householder asked her to join in 2019 because she had supported Speaker Ryan Smith at that time. So she was on the other team and Householder brought her over. And, you know, she started to describe then her her falling out with this with this team that she was slotted to to be part of in the first place. You know, Linese talked about a, a tense meeting of the group and, and Householder's calling on her, pressuring her to vote for HB6. She refused. At some point, someone in the group slammed something on the table and Householder again, you know, asked her, Laura, I, I need your vote. And and she again refused to do his bidding. She said she called it anti-free market legislation that unfairly charged constituents to pay for a private company's financial problems. And, and, and so this led to, you know, some ostracization, obviously. Linese stayed on Householder's leadership team, but he yanked her from her committee assignment for the House's Civil Justice Committee, and and, and that was her, her place yeah, well, on that team. This is why he was limiting it to one spot for a woman, because if they vote their conscience, they become a problem for what he's trying to accomplish. Fascinating testimony in this trial. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's go more on the trial. It's not every day that the scene of a petition signing gets called a war zone. Laura, how did that come up in the corruption trial of Larry Householder? Because we're talking about the the work to try to repeal HB6. So this is after they did everything they needed to do to get it passed, all the, the greasing of palms. They wanted to make sure that voters did not get a say. And this were they were folks that were trying to get this on the ballot so that voters could say, hey, hey, we don't want your $1.3 billion nuclear bailout. And Michael Robertson, Roberson, he's the CEO of Advanced Micro-Targeting. That was the company that was hired by Ohioans against corporate bailouts. They were supposed to gather 265,000 voter signature to put this on the 2020 November ballot. But his employees faced all sorts of harassment and stalking in the field. I, I mean, if you were around during this, you remember we talked a little bit about those Red China postcards. Those were part of the campaign to scare people out of even signing a petition. Uh, Political operatives created, quote, disturbances to deter signers. Employees for the repeal campaign were poached and disappeared, paid to quit their jobs without notice. Gatherers were followed by trackers who were trying to confuse signers with their own dummy petitions. I mean, it was mass chaos. And that's what Roberson said. It was a war zone. You know, what's problematic with all of this is that we covered this, that we talked about this, you know, thinking back to Jane Cahoon, our former politics and state editor, just being amazed that this was going on. And other than condemning it, which I think 
some of the politicians did. Nobody investigated it. I mean, this was the red flag that something bad was happening with these efforts. This I, we'd never seen this before. Physical kind of altercations from the very start of HB six. We reported and reported and reported all of the anomalies, you know, that this is something that had been rejected repeatedly by previous administrations. Nobody would pass it. And then all of a sudden it was a race and we're reporting it. And, and the opponents are screaming about it all the way up through this campaign to stop it with violence and all sorts of things. And nobody on the Ohio level, not one person, not a prosecutor, not the attorney general, nobody investigated it. Bad things were clearly happening and all of them were okay with it. All of them. And it took the federal justice department to come in and, and do something about it. What does that say for the state of our state government? Well, if you've been paying attention to the householder trial, it was really dirty. Right. And, and even the people who didn't do anything wrong, we don't know. They didn't know anything. They called this black ops. And it, it was, you're right. It was so obvious to anyone paying attention that we, this we covered had it. No, nothing good for the people of Ohio and was only good for the corporations. Everybody knew it was happening and nobody said, you know, this stinks. This stinks to the high heavens. What's going on here? And started looking into it. And it, if it weren't for the federal justice department, they all would have gotten away with everything. And, and part of that is, is the way that these PACs work, right? And the nonprofit generation now with a, a series of path through entities and raised all of this money that was funneling it to all sorts of politicians and checks passed you know, oh. under the table. And, and you can't see where the money comes from. So you can say, follow the money, but when there's a big black hole, it's kind of hard to do that. Yeah, I think it speaks more to that these people were all subservient to First Energy. I mean, even well, Dave, even Dave Yost, who wouldn't do what they were asking him to do in his communication, was saying, "Hey, if it weren't First Energy, right. I'd be on top of this." Mike Dewine, John Houston are subservient to First Energy, and because they were servants of First Energy instead of the voters, they weren't doing anything about this clear, clear wrongdoing. Somebody called it like a lobbying firm with a utility arm. I mean, they spent yeah. ungodly amounts of money. And I know somebody that worked there a long time in the 90s. And so, and, you know, we're talking about this one very specific move to get this bailout. We don't know what they did in the past. You don't just go whole hog the first time you try something bad, right? Like this company has been greasing palms for a very long right. time. And, uh, and from they own My the government. Belief. I mean, clearly this trial is showing just how much they owned the Ohio government. You're listening to Today in Ohio. So, Lisa, did Parma get away with violating the rights of a guy who created a parody Facebook page for the city police to pillory it? What's the word from the U.S. Supreme Court? They declined to hear the appeal of Parma resident Anthony Novak, and they didn't give a reason for that. So that means that lower court decisions from the common police court and from the appeals court will stand. And that means that uh, qualified immunity saves the day or rules the day, I should say. So Parma had argue, argued that qualified immunity shielded them from liability if, you know, it, the violation isn't within the scope of their job duties. So Anthony Novak created a fake 
Parma PD Facebook page. It was only up for a couple days, um, but he pilloried the Parma Police Department. He was charged and then later acquitted of creating that page. And that's when he sued on First Amendment violations. But the district and appeals courts sided with the city. That's why he went to the Supreme Court. So Novak in a statement said he's disappointed that the Supreme Court won't hear him. He said he won't be able to hold the officers accountable for violating his rights, and he worries about what happens to others who poke fun at the powerful. Um, uh, Subodh Chandra, who was one of uh, Novak's attorneys, said qualified immunity must be abolished before we have no rights at all. And another attorney for Novak, uh, Patrick Giacomo of the Institute for for Justice said that this means qualified immunity overrides the First Amendment in the Sixth District Court of Appeals. Yeah, this is wrong on so many fronts. I mean, the police abuse their power. Again, we keep talking about this on this podcast. Um, clearly violated his rights, clearly violated the First Amendment, and there is no penalty for it. They could do it again tomorrow and nothing happens. They did get international embarrassment because the friends of the court, including the onion, mm -hmm. just laid waste to their, what they did with, with great humor. I mean, the friends of the court, we did stories on them because they were hilarious, but at the heart of this, this guy took advantage of his right as an American citizen to criticize his government, got jailed for it, and the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, we're okay with that. And and the Parma you know, attorneys agree, of course, with the Supreme Court. They see Novak's behavior as not satirical at all. They didn't say exactly what it was, but uh, they say that their officers acted appropriately. Well, he was acquitted, so obviously they didn't act appropriately. And, and I think the court of public opinion is not kind to Parma here. I was hoping the Supreme Court would take the case because it would have been the right thing to do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know about the explosion at an Oakwood metals recycler that killed at least one person on Monday, Laura? Well, we don't know the cause, unfortunately. But Oakwood Fire Captain Brian DeRocco, he's been with the department for 25 years, says it's the largest fire the village has ever seen. 40 departments were there. 60 firefighters responded to that blast. And we know that about a dozen people are injured. The officials from the state fire marshal, the Ohio EPA, and OSHA are investigating this. This company recycles scrap metals, remelts them into new products. So they have brass and bronze alloys and pellets, and those are used in the energy, transportation, and construction industries. They have had some citations and fines in recent years. From OSHA, there was a worker who suffered third-degree burns after an accident in March 2019. He was using a ladle to get a sample out of a pot of molten metal inside a heat and oven, and, and he ended up um, getting caught on fire when metal splashed onto his overalls. And I guess he wasn't wearing these fire retardant overalls, so OSHA was fining the company $12,000. But I don't we, – we still don't know a whole lot. John Panna had video of the building, aerial shots, and you could just see this crater in the roof. Yeah, it was a massive explosion. And one of the quotes I saw from somebody was, well, they do deal with molten metal, so there's a risk. And I wasn't aware that molten metal posed an explosion risk. I've never played around with molten metal. I've only heat treated some blades. But we have a big steel plant where we never have explosions. I, I wonder if there's some combination of heat and cold that, that did it. And this was powerful explosion. I can't wait to hear what 
the cause was. I mean, I think it's there's going to be a bit of a science lesson. Um, I wonder if we should have a reporter look at the science of of molten metal to see what kind of explosion threat there is. If I lived anywhere near this plant, I'd want to know. Yeah, and you this can't be the only plant, right? And it's not like anyone had ever heard of this company, Schumann, before. It, it's not like a giant corporation. So there's probably a lot of these small manufacturers just all over Northeast Ohio. But we've never heard of one having an explosion. There are lots of companies that recycle metal, Mm -hmm. and I've just never heard of an explosion threat. You wonder what the combination was. Again, it blew off the entire wall. I mean, this is a big building, and the wall was gone. Steel beams were heaved out, and bits of molten metal were were found outside the plant. Yeah, cars were, you know, not crushed, but there were like holes in the windshields, and and major damage done all these cars in the parking lot this was a a, i mean somebody died we don't know how badly injured the other 12 are if they're going to survive i i hope everybody makes it and recovers yeah it's surprising with the force of this explosion that the casualties are not worse we'll have to keep it'll take a while for them to investigate this but uh we'll have to see what it is it's today in ohio that's it for the wednesday discussion chris i'm sorry you skipped over a story I did. Yes, you did. You skipped over the Buttigieg East Palestine oh. story. Oh, good. Let's do that, Lisa. Okay. Pete, sec- the, the U.S. Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, had some big thoughts about fixing the railroads. Reporter Sabrina Eaton laid them out. What did she report? Yeah, apparently uh, Pete Buttigieg has a laundry list of rail safety regulations that he wants to bring back or or institute. And he, you know, some of these were rolled back by the Trump administration. He accused the Trump administration of doing just that and accused railroads of, you know, lobbying to weaken these regulations. So among the list, he wants to require railroads to offer paid sick leave. Um, he wants uh, close call reporting to protect whistleblowers require a minimum of of two crew members. This train only had one crew member in East Palestine. Advanced notification to emergency responders when hazardous materials are moving through their state. Limits on train lengths and increased regulation of high hazard cargo. And he also wants to increase the maximum fines that are levied by ODOT from $225,000 to 10 times that amount. Yeah, I I loved this story because it laid out the entire list of what you need, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's as we've talked about this train derailment, each of these elements has been discussed as a possible fix. And he just went through them methodically saying, we need to do all of these. The, The question is, why haven't we done them in the past? Everybody knows you need them. The way they break trains is based on 150 year old technology and the modern techno, which, which sets the brakes in a series. So the first train car has its brakes, then the next one, then the next one. And if they put in the new brakes, they all hit the brakes at the same time. And these trains are really long. So if you think about how long it takes for them all to hit their brakes, especially with that many cars, it's very long time. Donald Trump gets part of the blame. There were regulations that were they were trying to put in back when uh, he was president and he stopped them. Right, for the pneumatic braking. And they're also demanding phasing of safer DOT 117 tank cars by 2025. Yeah, well, that's been a big problem. There's been research done, and they wanted to ban one of these unsafe cars, but they grandfathered it for a long period of time. Hopefully, they'll do it all. Hopefully, the fervor for this will remain, and it won't go away as soon as the 
television cameras leave East Palestine. And that does it for Today in Ohio for Wednesday. Thank you, Courtney, Laura, and Lisa, and thanks to everybody who listens. <laughs>